Hello, my name is Neil Ferguson. I'm the Millbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution here at Stanford. And one of the things I do is to chair the Hoover History Working Group. We've been very fortunate just to hear a talk from uh, Maya Jasanoff about a book that hasn't yet been written. Maya is the XD and Nancy Yang Professor of Arts and Sciences and the Coolidge Professor of History at Harvard University. She's the author of three prize-winning books, Edge of Empire, Liberty's Exiles, and most recently, The Dawn Watch, Joseph Conrad in a Global World. But I think it's fair to say that her new project takes her work in, in a new and extraordinarily exciting direction. The title of the forthcoming book will be Ancestors, Where Do We Come From and Why Do We Care? And the central theme of the book will be, and I quote, ancestry itself has an ancestry. Maya, welcome to Hoover. And let, let me begin by asking a really straightforward question. Was it your own ancestry that got you into ancestry as a topic for a book? Yes and no. Um, I first thought about ancestry as a topic when I began visiting archives as a graduate student in history. And uh, in those archives, I found that the vast majority of fellow users were not diligent young graduate students like me, but rather um, a, a quite different uh, appearing demographic, older, uh, uniformly white, uh, researching their own ancestors, doing genealogical research. And this is a huge pastime uh, around the Anglo uh, uh, English speaking world. Um, and I found myself wondering what these people were really looking for, because my own ancestry, which is on one side Ashkenazi Jewish and on the other side Bengali Indian, uh, is certainly not the kind of ancestry that you can go research in big national archives, um, probably in no archives. Um, and I found it all extremely alienating. Um, but I then started to think about it and I thought maybe I had a little more in common with these people than I had expected because it, when I pressed on my interest in history, I realized that it was my own grandmother's stories about you know, growing up in uh, you know, Hungary between the wars and growing up in India in the period of independence and so on that had really whetted my appetite to become the historian that I am. So I came to see that ancestry is really something that goes way beyond you know, the kind of cliches about genealogical research, that it is what places any of us individuals in time, and it is the living link that we all have to the past. Now, in, in common with me, you believe in, in teaching something before you write it. And uh, this is already uh, a course at, at Harvard and an astonishingly popular course, which suggests you're really onto something. Talk a bit about the course and its, uh, its amazing success. Sure. So I had the idea that maybe it was worth thinking about what genealogists were doing and why ancestry seemed to matter at a time when the genetic ancestry tests that are now quite widespread uh, were coming online. And in order to get at this, I thought, well, you know, why don't I try to develop a course? Um, and I 
immediately thought about the curriculum that we have here at Harvard called the general education curriculum, which deliberately crosses disciplinary boundaries, because it seemed to me that while there's a story that has to do with archives, there's also a story that has to do with genetics. And I needed to find some way to stitch these things together. So I developed the template for a course that was going to explore the idea and significance of ancestry in different media, so to speak, in genetics and documents and places um, and across time. Because as I started to look at this, it seemed to me that one could historicize the ancestry of ancestry. Um, you and I, I think, are similar in sharing a curiosity about how things got to be the way they are. That is fundamentally what, what the historical imagination is. And so, you know, when I thought about why the genetic ancestry tests were popular, it was something that took me all the way back, you know, to the beginnings of Homo sapiens. So the course, you know, works chronologically through different ways of um, recording ancestry, uh, processing the knowledge generated by ancestry, and aims to lead students to a richer discussion about matters of identity, about matters of race, uh, and about the relationship between science and society today. So let me help you break it down into those components, which I guess will be sections of, of the book. One that obviously springs to mind is the extraordinarily disastrous way in which uh, people fought and then fought about issues uh, of human genetics, in particular race, from the mid-19th century to, to the mid-20th century. Uh, so talk a little bit about that, but then I also want to hear about the other parts, the earlier and I, I hope happier parts of the story. Sure. So a bunch of things happen in the late 19th, early 20th century, um, somewhat unrelated to each other, but with great consequences for one another. One of them is, of course, that the idea of human origins is completely unsettled in the West by Darwin, uh, by also, I should say, the geologists who, who preceded Darwin. Um, and on the back of that, the quantum of inheritance biologically is identified by Gregor Mendel, whose discoveries are taken up and widely popularized in the first half of the 20th century. So ancestry becomes a biological thing with a kind of apparatus and, and, a, and a discipline, which we call genetics, attached to it. At the same time, um, the, the, the period of the later 19th century witnesses a, a new wave of national consolidation and imperial consolidation, unification of Germany, Italy, et cetera, uh, you know, new wave of imperial rule, uh, and new instruments for governance, including censuses, which are very interested in classifying people by their ethnic uh, and linguistic and national origins. And then a third phenomenon happens at the same time, which is a surge in global migration um, around the Atlantic, around uh, the Indian Ocean, and around the, uh, the North uh, Pacific as well, through which hundreds of millions of people uh, are moving and relocating. And all of those things happening at, you know, alongside one another lead, I think, to uh, new regimes in which ancestry matters. It matters for citizenship law, it matters for immigration, it matters uh, for, you know, in, in all kinds of ultimately very uh, destructive ways for uh, policies of eugenics and and later uh, ethnic cleansing and genocide. This is the kind of uh, dark side of your subject, but going 
back in time, it seems as if in the early modern period, uh, ancestry meant something quite different. Uh, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, and particularly about the great preoccupation, certainly of people in early modern Europe, but I'm sure not only there, with uh, inherited privilege and status. Because uh, when I read my way through my favorite 19th century authors, they always seem to be obsessed with uh, people turning out actually to be related to Lord Snooty rather than uh, mere commoners. The plot often hinges on revelations about parentage and therefore status and, and wealth. And, and that's a completely different set of issues, also problematic, of course, because inequality is a, is a problem in its own right. But tell us a bit about how ideas of ancestry were prior to Darwin and prior to globalization. So I think that ancestry has always been allied with power and access and status. And, um, and one of the most concrete ways we see that, of course, is through the inheritance of property. And another of the most important ways that we see this is through rules about who gets to marry whom, which ultimately are a, a, a sort of fundamental form of social organization as anthropologists notably, uh, if somewhat controversially have posited. Um, one good example of this would be the Indian caste system, which of course is said to have religious roots, but in practice is a way of uh, creating um, social hierarchies of matching occupation onto birth status and very much of uh, organizing who gets to marry whom down to the point that uh, even today, if you look on uh, you know, Indian marriage websites, you'll see innumerable categories that are organized uh, by caste. So I don't wanna suggest that before Darwin, before genetics, everything to do with ancestry was all rosy. I think it's always been a way to try to make some people present themselves as better than others. But I think that the grounding in which that was done tended to be uh, more religious, um, tended to be perhaps more um, related to uh, monarchical and aristocratic power. Um, and the, the, the tools that bolster that, whether they be wealth or whether they be force of arms. Um, and that, that that has always been essentially why people seek to assert claims to particular, uh, you know, distinguished ancestors. You know, it's a trope of all, you know, dynasties that, you know, all sort of usurpers to thrones kind of come in and say, oh, but I actually descend from so-and-so, you know, even in the case of, you know, the fairy Melusina or whatever it may be. This is a, this is a very uh, ancient move that is made in societies around the world. Now, as we look uh, around us today, obviously our understanding of these issues has changed again very radically. The advent of, of modern genetics, our understanding uh, of DNA, we're in a very different place from people in that, uh, that dark age, if that's the right term, from the mid-19th to the mid-20th century, which we associate with the rise of eugenics and multiple disasters, the most grim of which was, of course, the Holocaust. And I wonder if uh, your book is going to get into the, the territory of uh, modern debates uh, about identity uh, and about genetics, because it seems to me that although we understand the science a lot better than people 100 years ago, there are new forms in which uh, trouble can surface. For example, uh, when arguments start to be that certain entitlements, say 
reparations are going to be allocated according to people's ancestry, only descendants of slaves uh, need apply. And then there's the whole vexed question of, of health insurance and uh, what happens if it turns out that you've actually got a higher probability of some uh, inherited disease. So let's talk a little bit about the, the contemporary problems, assuming that your book is going to venture right up to the, the present or at least the recent past. Yeah, so I think that one of the challenges that we face certainly in the United States, but I think this could be applied to societies around the world, is that because ancestry has mattered in so many different ways for so long, it is sedimented into the way things run. It is sedimented into college admissions in the United States. It is sedimented into uh, you know, adoption law, all kinds of things, uh, and citizenship uh, around the world. And so the advent of genetic tests therefore comes at a time when we already have ways that we make ancestry matter. And it raises the question of whether we're going to now say that genetic ancestry is the form of ancestry that's going to matter or whether other kinds of ancestry may matter. For example, descent from a particular named individual. So this is something that has not yet been worked out in anything like a consistent way. Um, and that I think we absolutely um, we'll have to think through to avoid some of the really crude racial thinking of the past. You know, scholars of United States immigration and citizenship law will know well the series of cases that came before um, federal and the Supreme Court in the early 20th century, which sought to establish which kinds of Asian immigrants counted as white, quote unquote, for the purposes of naturalization, and went through a new, you know, incredible um, sort of um, gymnastics to show that, you know, well, actually, it's not about the place you're from, it's about the color of your skin. No, it's not about the color of the skin, it's about the place you're from, et cetera, et cetera. And we're very much in that you know, run the risk, I think, of having similarly sort of muddled and uh, self-contradictory sorts of discussions today. Well, here at uh, Hoover, we're interested in uh, applying history to contemporary issues, but in some ways, uh, all of this is about applying uh, history to oneself, and that seems to be what motivates those people you talked about earlier to go and research their their family trees. Uh, when our uh, former, uh, well, my former colleague, your colleague Skip Gates, does this kind of stuff on television, there's always a moment when people find out something surprising about their own family history, their own genealogy. And I can't resist asking you as a final question if, in the course of the early research for this book, you found out anything surprising about your own genealogy, your own family history. So I found out. One thing that wasn't surprising at all, but that is telling, which is that um, I did do one of these genetic tests. And before uh, the results came, I had set up a lecture in which I was going to do a big reveal. It was going to be a great moment for everybody, but the results didn't come in time. And so, and so I had to do a reveal that said essentially, well, I don't need a genetic test because I know exactly who I am. And indeed, it turned out that the genetic test showed that I was 50% Ashkenazi Jewish and 50% Bengali Indian. So, uh, so no uh, funny business in my ancestry. Uh, but that does make the point that, you know, we, our, our ways of knowing where we come from don't rely on these tests. 
On the other side, I'd say that, you know, it has been interesting to me to use some of the good old fashioned historical research methods I've honed over other projects on myself and uh, in particular to try to unpack things about uh, my father's ancestry um, doc in documents. And, and uh, I, I discovered that my last name uh, about which I have quite a bit of pride because it belongs only to the members of my nuclear family um, has changed so many times over the last few generations. So my, uh, I found a naturalization certificate for my great grandfather, the first Jasanoff, on which the name that the, that the uh, clerk wrote, which was um, Jasnovsky, not Jasanoff, um, is in turn different from the name he signed himself, which was Ashnovsky, is in turn different from the name as it's rendered in the index, which is something like Asanovsky. So it's all a muddle and historical research is, uh, is, is always going to yield surprises. Well, I had always wondered a bit, a bit about your surname, but you'd be surprised how many times a very common surname like Ferguson could get mangled. Um, there's even a joke about uh, the man who goes through Ellis Island uh, and is told to give the name uh, uh, Sean Ferguson, which can also be rendered as Sean Ferguson in Yiddish, I've already forgotten, but I'll spare you the joke, which doesn't really work if you tell it in a non-Jewish British accent anyway. Maya, thanks so much for joining us at, at Hoover. I think it's an absolutely extraordinary project you've embarked on. It's a sign that you've got a bestseller in your hands, that the course is already one of the two largest and most popular courses at, at Harvard. Uh, of course, you can't buy ancestors yet, sadly, viewers. But let me take this opportunity to plug uh, once again Maya's earlier books, Edge of Empire, Liberty's Exiles, and most recently, The Dawn Watch, a book on, on Joseph Conrad. Maya Jasanov, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.